0: and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs, let us enter them.' So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Donna. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here at Roswell. Y'all got to coordinate better. Just saying. Well, the devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind, because he was way behind. And he was willing to make a deal. Fire on the mountain, run, boy, run. Come on. All right, so if you don't know what's going on right now, a couple reasons one maybe you're from the north <laughs> it's fine i'm from the north it's all good or, or like you just moved from the west coast um or you've just never seen the laser show at stone mountain those those are your that's the category if you don't know what just happened there i can't help you this classic uh southern folk hero song uh, in it you see johnny who's being accosted by the devil who wants to grab his soul and he says, listen, I will take you on in a duel, in a fiddling duel. And of course, Johnny, being this folk hero, takes on the devil and wins. He's the superior fiddle player, which is, of course, largely how Satan deals with people. And, he, and the devil gives him a golden fiddle because he wins. And of course, Johnny gets to keep his soul. It's a close call. So my question to you this morning is, have you ever made a bargain with the devil? Have you ever made a pact with the devil? Definitely not. Probably not. Hopefully not. Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our series in Mark. um, And as we explore this, this question hopefully will begin to get clearer in your mind and maybe the answer might be a little different than you would have anticipated but this morning we're going to see three things coming out of this out of this text we're going to see the power that evil promises the power evil promises the freedom that jesus offers and then two ways to respond to this jesus the power evil promises the freedom jesus offers and then the two ways we respond to this jesus so first, the power that evil promises. I want to begin by making clear my premise. One, The one that I'm operating under for this entire sermon, and that is that evil is real. Now, there can be an entire sermon trying to articulate and clarify what that looks like. We can spend time looking at how the modern and enlightenment and the naturalistic worldview has rested on the... Uh, on the scientific method in a way that though all of its data and all of its information, it simply cannot, it cannot hold the weight of what has unfolded in this modern, enlightened world in the last 150 years. It it just can't make sense of what's happened individually, corporately, tribally, and nationally. It can't account for things like the Holocaust. It just can't. It doesn't, it can't hold it up. Evil is real, and because even with this naturalistic worldview, it's impossible to, to deny, to empirically deny the existence of God, then, then by default, that would mean that there's the possibility that God can exist, which I believe he does exist. And if there's a good being, a good ultimate being, spiritual being, then there can also be spiritual beings of evil. And that's some of what we see here in this, in this passage. For those of us who follow christ and who who believe that the word of god is is authoritative and declares ultimate reality we see from genesis chapter 3 all the way through revelation that there is indeed evil oh it's real and it has effect in the real world and it's having effect in this real world today so evil is real but evil evil's power is destructive that's the effect of evil. Jesus says it pretty clearly in, in John 10.10. 10. These are Jesus' words. He says, the thief, which is the evil one, the devil, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That, that's all he's about, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I came, Jesus said, that you that they may have life and have it abundantly combination of these two things that, that evil is real and on top of it being real that it's destructive in its sole purpose and its sole goal should, should reorient our hearts a little bit this morning to one particular fact and that is that that there's a war going on that there's a there's a spiritual war going on right now for your soul, for my soul, the evil is real and that, that that evil is personal and is and is hunting your soul. That personal evil desires to destroy us in this very moment. Destroy us, those around us, all that's good and beautiful. That that's that's what it's bent on at all times. We loved ones, we we don't inhabit a neutral realm. There's no such thing as, as neutrality, which which means that some of us need to wake up. We need to wake up to that reality in our world and around us. We need to um, to look at the, the crowded realities of life around pain and suffering, around destruction and leave, and evil, and the kind of things that we've fallen maybe asleep to or that we're that we're numbing ourselves to, maybe if I can keep it far enough away, it won't be true, at least for me. I think today's passage tells us to wake up, to to take heed, to pay attention to the fact that there is a spiritual war afoot, and it's taking place all around us. Now you might say, having read this passage or listened to it, you might say, Well, okay, I hear you, evil. I mean there, there's maybe some argumentation around how, how pervasive it might be or where it comes from. Is it psychological? Is it nurture? Is it nature? Is it But um and, and so you might say that and then you look at the passage and you say, But regardless, like I'm not running around cutting myself with stones and and, and living in the in the homes of dead people and tombs. I, that's not what I'm doing. I actually don't even know that I've ever been, certainly I don't think I've been demon-possessed and I, I don't I don't think I even know anyone who maybe has been demon-possessed. So, so this feels like it's kind of over there. It feels maybe distant. And by the way, I thought Christians couldn't be demon-possessed. So maybe those are some of your questions. You probably have questions about pigs. I'm not going to spend much time on the pigs, so that'll have to be a follow-up sermon. We tend to think I think as we listen to this, we tend to think of this guy as someone who's who's always been like this, like he came out of the womb like foaming at the mouth and like possessed by a demon. Like you know, like you thought some of your children may have been at sometimes. You know, like yeah, no, that one's possessed. We're sure just because of the behavioral issues, clearly. But that's that's not reality. Look at look at verse three. It says, and no one could bind him any more. No one could bind him anymore. What that means is, there was a time in which he could be bound. There was a time, in, there's been progression of the effect of evil on him. There's, there's been a process. There's been growth. There's been more than was before. And I think some of our challenge with this is we think of, is centered around the words like demon possessed. We think of, look at those words and, and... No, no slam to the ESV translators or most. It's that, that's not, that's not a great translation because it's not a two-word junction. It's actually one word. It really is demonized. It's demonized. And, and uh, Dr. Uh, Timothy Warner, who was a prophet um, at Trinity Divinity School, he's, this is one of his areas of expertise. And this is what he says about that particular phrase and its effect on how we think about possession. This is what he says. He said it would come into English if we thought about it as demonized. It would come into English as demonized, and listen to this, and we could then speak of the degree to which a person could be demonized, so the degree to which rather than being limited to an either-or option imposed by the possessed, non-possessed view. Now, a Christian may be attacked by demons and may be affected mentally and sometimes physically at significant levels but spiritual possession clearly implies ownership and would seem to include the control over one's eternal destiny. In either case, it would be impossible to be owned and controlled by Satan and have a saving relationship with Jesus at the same time. So, if the question is, can a Christian be demon-possessed, the answer is clearly no. So, if that was one of your questions, hopefully that answers that, but I want to go back to something he said right at the beginning. He says, if we look at the right context, the right word that describe what's going on with this man, it's demonized. And he says, we could then speak of, if we thought about it as demonized, not as possessed by a demon, you could then speak of the degree to which a person could be demonized. That means we need to think about it as degrees of affectedness or of influence by evil. That changes the scope of this. It's not, okay, crazy guy who's demonized, don't know them, that's not me, thanks, I'll pay attention to the next sermon. No, no, this this means that there there is degrees to which the effect and impact of evil can come upon us. This is where it comes home to us, because evil is influencing and affecting each of us far more than we realize, far more than we're aware. Listen, Satan doesn't come to us in a full frontal attack. That's not how he works. He usually comes to us as soft power, not, not hard power. Tim Keller says, demonic forces stir up and aggravate all of the other factors that mess up your life. They aggravate, they, they stir them up, they intertwine them, they entangle them. Satan stirs up the things that are already there, and that's been happening since the beginning of time. This is how Satan, or spiritual warfare, which is not in the Bible, but is the description of what's going on here, as actually works in the scriptures, and of course, in our world too. Again, from the beginning, we see this in the garden, and Dallas Willard comments on it this way. He says, when, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea it was with an idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. See, Satan appealed to something that was already in her. You remember, right? She, she sees the she, uh, Satan's talking to her and she sees the fruit and she sees that it's, it's good for food, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's desirable for wisdom. And so Satan takes that and he says, well, you should be wise too. You could be like God. He takes the thing that she has and he intertwines it and he feeds it back to her. And John Mark Comer, pastor in Portland, says the devil's primary strategy in spiritual warfare isn't demon possession, as we, or illness, or sickness, or even tragedy. That's all options A, B, and C, and D, sorry, B, C, and D. His primary strategy. His go-to formula to drive the human soul into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. Let me read that last verse, last thing one more time. His his go-to formula with you, with me, is to drive to drive the human soul into complete ruin is giving deceptive ideas that play on our disordered desires. He's giving fuel. He's giving flame to the fuel that's there. That's how Satan works in us. He tells us, just like he told Eve, promises her another version of the good life, and and she takes it. That's what he's promising you and me. That's what Satan's doing. He's promising another version of the good life, and of course it looks different for every single one of us. See, this... It's crafted. It's, it's, it's created just perfect fit just for you, just for me. So you can be, maybe you can be powerful and, and formidable. Maybe you, you, can, you can be loved and, and, and wanted. You can be safe and secure. No, no, no. You can be unique and, and special. You can be needed and indispensable, or, or you can be free and unshackled. You can be admired and esteemed. Yes, yes, absolutely, you can be those things. I'm for you, Satan would say. Satan has formulas for each of us, a bargain trade for each of us. I don't think there's a, a good of a contemporary illustration of that bargain plan that he has, that Satan might have for you in this very moment or has been using with you as the uh, the story, the tale of the Deadly hollows. Are um, my Harry Potter nerds. Sorry, fans. <laughs> same, same, Um In book seven of the Harry Potter series, there is this moment where they tell the story, the tale of the of the Deathly Hollows, and um, and the, the the story goes like this: that there was three wizards that came to this river, this river crossing, and um, instead of just wading through, they decided to use their powers to create a bridge. And as they started walking across the bridge, Death showed up because it had been robbed of their lives. You see, that's a river where everyone who goes across dies, and it should have been their death, and therefore they belong to death, but they had robbed him. And so he gets tricky, though. Instead of taking them on, he boasts in them. He says, you guys are so clever. You're so much better than everybody else. And he says, I will now, because of that, give you three wishes. And so he gives each of them the desires of their hearts. So the first one, we're not going to talk about the third one, because I think it's like too complicated to go through the whole thing. But The first two, I think, are just perfect illustrations, so... If you're wearing an invisibility cloak right now, I apologize. Um, <clears throat> Some people understood that. So um, so the first, wanted, he wanted power to overcome, power to conquer. He wanted to never lose again in any kind of duel. And so and so, death gives him this wand. It fashions this wand for him, which means that he can never lose in a duel. And so he finds himself going back to his hometown, to the place in which he had someone that he had beef with, and he duels with them. And what happens, of course, he kills him. And after he kills him, like drunk with power and drunk with the blood of the one he'd killed, he boasts about the fact that he is indestructible, that he cannot be killed because this wand he will never lose. And however, in the night, his throat is slit by a knife and death gets her prize anyway. And then the second one said, I I actually am interested in bringing resuscitation power, um, resurrection power, resurrection stone, resurrection power, and so that... Death gives him this stone, and, and he wants to go back because he has lost his great love. There was this love that, that he had, and, and, and she died in an untimely death, and so he wants her back, and so he brings her back to life. But but as she comes back to life, she is miserable in this world. She hates how she's experiencing it, and, and her despair and her distraughtness cause him despair, and he hangs himself and kills himself, and so death gets her prize again. You see, that's, that's exactly how Satan works. He fuels, he gives fire to the fuel that's already there. Devil says, I'll, I'll give you success. I'll give you ability. I'll give it what you want. But, but through it, and this doesn't show up till later, through it, I, I am going to enslave you. And the more I enslave you, the more I will destroy you. Yeah, but that's in the fine print. That second part's always in the fine print. You see this with, um, with a demonized man. This is a guy who can break chains, who, who can't be shackled, that no one can control. He's, this guy's got supernatural power that's, that's clearly been given to him. It's been bolstered by the devil. He's, he's given him. The demons have, have brought about something that would never be possible without him. He's given him something, but it's also taken something. It's taken real, real and true freedom. He's someone who now is destroying himself. He's gaining strength, but he's losing. He's cutting himself. He's, he's crying out. He's isolated and alone amongst the dead. And the things he gains don't even really matter, and the things he loses are all the things that matter, friends and family and life and freedom and hope and joy. and it's not just this poor soul because see that's that's how evil operates that that's actually how it works it's this bargain trade that satan wants to make with us he says i i will give fuel to your race you want to run this way to this good life i will i will do everything i can to help you i will i will whisper the the very lies that that motivate and galvanize you i will use them with you i will i will come alongside and and support you in this Endeavor, and that's how he operates with each one of us. That's how he operates with everyone. Which Becky Pippert, who's uh, both an author and a speaker, um, she wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker, and, and she kind of talks about this idea. She says um, uh, that no one is in control of themselves, that, that being in control of yourself is actually an illusion. She explains that um, that whenever y- whatever you seek most will become your Lord. And this is how she actually says it. She says it's unavoidable. She says the person who seeks power is controlled by power. That's the fuel on the ground. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Which begs the question, what's the Lord of your life? What's the Lord of my life? see John the Apostle John in 1 John 3 says Who, whoever makes a practice of sinning listen to this is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning right that's that's all it can be doing all that everyone's been able to do is to sin from the beginning he says the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil so everyone who's 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 practicing sin who's 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 giving themselves to the ways in which they're creating the good life, is actually operating with the devil in league with him. So what Becky Pippert's saying, what this First John passage is saying, and honestly what the majority of the scriptures point to, is that if you're not under the control of Jesus, then, then you're under the control of Satan. That if Christ is not the most important thing in your life, then, then Satan has you. I mean, not all of you, but he has you. The devil's come down to Georgia, and he's given you something, something that will boost the quest for your good life, something that you're willing to trade your soul for. So he'll give you strength to reach it. At the same time, he'll take away your freedom. Little by little, agreement by agreement, one decision at a time. And what's crazy is when you come to realize that you've achieved it, whatever it is, you've gotten it. That promised goal from your work life or you've attained the relationship that you were anticipating would be life itself or the security that you promised was needed or the admiration that you've been seeking since childhood, that you find yourself enslaved. And as you're enslaved, you find yourselves being destroyed, you find yourselves being being torn apart. There's deep inside a crying out, just like the man in the tombs. There's a gnawing anxiety. There's there's a dread of losing the thing that you've been fighting so hard to get, and if it gets lost in any way, shape, or form, life ends. There's an unending drivenness because it's your Lord, and it is controlling you. That's the nature and the power of evil. That's the bargain that we strike with Satan and he loves to steal, kill, and destroy, and so loved ones. Evil is wanting to enslave you. It's going to do so gradually, and it's going to do so over time, and it's going to take over your life and your heart if you let him. And so, one of my questions to you is, what what are the influences that you've let into your life? What are the what are the strongholds, the the habits that, that have progressively taken on greater and greater control over your thoughts, over your body, over your emotions, over your mind? Where have you struck a bargain? If I, well then, so if I could. One of the reasons why... Um, we're doing this Lenten reflection guide is to try and root some of that out. We're trying to isolate something that that maybe we have bargained with Satan with in order to get the good life that we wanted promised to us and to try and extract it through the power of the Spirit so that there can be greater freedom. Because that's what Jesus came for. He came to save us from our sins, but he came to save us unto freedom, which is why Galatians 5 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, he says. Stand firm. He set you free, but you have to stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Who's enslaving you? Oh, the one who will give you everything you wanted, really wanted. That's not Jesus, as long as it's not Jesus. Evil is real, and it promises power in exchange for your life. That's the power, and that's the power that evil promises. But there's good news. There's actually very good news, and that Jesus offers freedom. He offers freedom today for you. And the way he offers freedom, Jesus can offer freedom because he has power over evil. I think one of the most fascinating things about this story is, is to see the reaction of the demonized man, and the demons in particular, to Jesus. Do you see the dichotomy? Jesus steps off the boat and this man comes rushing off and he falls to his knee. There's begging, there's pleading, there's fear. There's, don't torment us. They are at his mercy. That's how powerful Jesus is. It, the fact that they even use the, the word legion, which he said, my name is legion. All commentators pretty much agree. Like That's a declaration of just a whole bunch of demons. Because a Roman legion at the time was roughly about 6,000 soldiers. So I'm not sure if that's exactly what we see when they go into the pigs. It's, you know, like the math people is like three per pig. If you're wanting to know how the pig thing works, I'm sure that's what it is. He's that powerful. 6,000 or more or maybe a few less. And they shake, they tremble. They're afraid. He's that powerful. And what's great about it is that we see, just like we did with the storm, that, that Jesus doesn't have to bring any kind of incantation. He, he doesn't have to go and, and call on another name. He doesn't have to do a, what I'll call a standard exorcism where you, you call on a higher power to have more power than the one who's possessed. That's not, that's not what happens here. Jesus just says, get out. And they get out. Oh, they, they beg and they plead, they want to go to the pigs, yes, but but they get out. They try to bargain with him, absolutely, but they, they get out, and, and actually what's interesting is you see in the passage that the demons try and, and do an exorcism of Jesus. They, they say, I adjure you by God. They're actually trying, this is awesome, the demons are going like, hey, I'm going to try and pull God in so that you cannot have to do to us the thing that you're going to do to us anyway. Jesus doesn't call on any higher power, he is the highest power and that is good news because evil is real and it is destructive but Jesus has more power than 6000 demons and more Jesus has power over evil and Jesus can offer freedom to evil because he has conquered evil Colossians 2:15 says that he God God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, in him. Man, that's a great verse. He put them to open shame. He disarmed them. He stripped them of all that they had, all the effect that they could have. The second portion of that first John passage I read a minute ago says that the reason that the Son of God appeared, why Jesus came, was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what he did. When he said, it is finished, it meant like all authority has been given. He has ultimate power, and that's the great news of the gospel. That be, because of Jesus, that, that in Jesus We have nothing to fear of a legion of demons. Loved ones, we have nothing to fear of Satan himself. Now, the New Testament's clear. Be on your guard pay attention. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. It's real. It's destructive. It's powerful. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's the ultimate reality of the gospel. That's what Jesus purchased and made real and possible for yours and my life. And that includes all the bargains you've made. All the things that you're negotiating with God and with Satan on. To try and get the good life that you thought you're owed. put them to open shame. This is Paul's way of saying Christus victor, right? Christ has triumphed. And that's what we see in this man, which I think is fantastic. The, the picture of it is awesome. In verse 15, it says, and they they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, in case we were wondering, um, and he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. I, I don't know that there's uh in this context, a better picture of what the good life that's been been redefined by Jesus looks like than this. He's sitting there in perfect peace. A man who was roaming, he's sitting at rest at Jesus' feet and he's clothed. He's clothed in dignity. The man was running around naked. He's clothed. He's been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He's it is well with his soul. His shame has been covered by Jesus. I even wondered this is you know narrative imagination. I wondered if, if Jesus had to give him his or ask one of the disciples to grab their cloak or the extra tunic that they weren't supposed to have. Um, I wonder if I wonder if they, they gave him that and he clothed them, he actually clothed him as he's clothed all of us in Christ. And it says that he was in his right mind, that he was connected to ultimate reality, the truth of how things really are in Jesus, the, the, the big questions of who am I and who is God and, and, and what does it mean to have good life, that, that, those, that his mind was connected to reality and it was well with him. That... That's the picture we get to see of the freedom that Jesus offers. In the midst of unbelievable evil, right? That's the freedom of Christ. And so, that's the freedom Jesus offers. What are the two ways we respond? Oh, there's two very obvious ones that come out of this text, and one is, is the crowd. They have a very singular response. You see in verse 17, and they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I don't know what this. This is like one of the saddest version uh, verses in in the Gospels. They begin to beg Jesus, "Leave us alone." Like when you, when you think about the gravity of that, that the Son of God is in your midst, and you say, leave leave us leave me alone. They're begging him. It's funny because it's almost identical. You know, there's this. Um, their reaction echoes the same reaction that the man with the demons had to Jesus. Can, you, don't torment me. Leave, just leave, leave me alone. Let, let me figure out a way to make this life work. If I can just stay alive, that, that'll be good enough for me. That'll be good enough for us. Don't make us powerless unto ourselves. It says that the people were afraid, which is the same exact words as the disciples after they saw Jesus calm the storm. So they're in good company. They're afraid. They see the man and they see the pigs. We're back to the pigs. and The story of the pigs. And they're afraid. And they beg Jesus not to mess with the way in which the world is working for them. Not to mess with their habits, not to mess with their worldview. They were confronted with one who had real power, and this power threatened their livelihood. Threaten, threatened the status quo that they that they were living under. That, that's that's one of, A couple of the commentators are pretty clear thinking that two things happened with the pigs. One, it demonstrates the magnitude of the evil that was going on, the destructive power of evil that was going on in this man, which is like, wow. <laughs> the second thing that was going on in the pigs is that people said, whoa, you just killed a bunch of our livelihood. That's cash. Now it's just deviled ham. What? <laughs> That's a Clark Collins joke, just so we're clear. <clears throat> For those who liked it, it was mine. Um... But Jesus shows up and he flips everything upside down. He, he, make, he makes a mess. He makes a mess of the way in which they were fi- figured out a way to make their life work. And, and they don't want him anymore. They want him to go, to leave them alone. And that's what some of us have done with Jesus, with some of what, of us, what we've done with Christianity. We've we've come to realize that following Jesus, that, that, that conforming to what he has for us means that we don't get to decide what we're doing with our body or, or we don't get to decide what we do with our money and what we do with our time and with our energy, a focus of our time and our future, that it belongs to him and that he actually claims it. And that's too much. He He's upsetting the status quo. There's some things that, there's some ways in which I cope with my life that Jesus is saying, that's actually not something I want for you. I'd like to be you to be free from that. And we're saying, you know what? I kind of need that. I, I need that because that's, that's fueling the ultimate thing. And so don't mess, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. What ways are you saying leave me alone? What are the things that that Jesus can't stir up or mess with right now? Is it reputation stuff? Is it, is it hidden habits? Is it ways you're coping? Is it a relationship in particular? What ways are you asking him to leave you? If that's you this morning, I just want to, I just want to implore you because. Because Jesus will indeed ask for your entire life. He'll ask you to submit to him, to, to give your full self to him. He'll, he'll say, you know what, absolutely. For me to be the king in your life, it means for you to be under all that I've called you into. But, but the bargain that he will make with you is not a bargain. The call, the invitation is, is not a bargain that's going to destroy you. He's going to provide you with real freedom. And everyone wants freedom. And the things that are secondary are enslaving. They always have been and they always will be. What I love is that with the picture of this man that there is, there is no one that can't be reached. When Jesus crosses the sea, apparently for this guy, I believe it was for all of the, the inhabitants too, but, but he's the only one who responds. But he goes from being the most outcast to a disciple in an afternoon. I don't know what kind of demonization is going on in your world, but what that tells me is like nothing is outside of the reach of Jesus. I don't care where you are, what you've done. I don't care how hopeless you feel. It means that he can bring freedom there, wherever there is for you. And that's good news. That's real hope for you. So are you, are you trapped in addiction, some kind of pattern of self-destruction? Jesus wants to free you. He's come to free you. As one commentator said it this way, he said, Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit, living among unclean tombs, surrounded by a people employing, employed in unclean occupations, all in unclean Gentile territory. And what does he do? He makes him clean. Nothing is beyond his reach. So that's one response. The second response is the response of the man, and it's really twofold. Verse 18, he says, and he was getting into the boat. This is Jesus. Jesus is getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged. Huh. Begged him that he might be with him. That the crowd begs Jesus to leave. You gotta leave us alone. And the man begs to go with him. This may be one of the most beautiful moments, verses, in the Gospels. He wants to be with him. What I love about Mark is that these are the exact same words as Jesus that are used by, in chapter 3 when Jesus is calling his disciples, he says that he called all of these guys to be apostles. In in, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, And he appointed twelve so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. This guy wanted to be a disciple. He he wanted to be with Jesus. You know the mark of someone who's been freed by Jesus, who's experienced the fact that Jesus has overcome evil in their life is that they want to be with Jesus. And and they are people who are with Jesus. And do you want to be with Jesus? Is Is that the trajectory, the movement of your heart and life towards him? That's the road towards freedom. Jesus said, the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And what do you know, he does both. Verse 18, he says, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What's the thing that Jesus has done for you? Because that's the thing that is to be on our lips, according to Jesus. Go and tell everyone the thing that I've done for you. And this guy's like, okay, I can't come with you? Then I guess I'll go do this. And this is what he does. He just goes and starts telling all his friends, and people marvel. And what does he tell them? What the Lord has done for me. What has the Lord done? What is he doing in you? Honestly, most of us don't know what we're supposed to say to people who don't know Jesus. What you're supposed to say is the cool stuff that Jesus has done for you. The powerful things that Jesus has done for you. The transformative things that Jesus has done is doing in you. How will we face the evil in our lives? How do we face the evil that is present and around us? We must see how much the Lord has done for us. We must. How he's had mercy on us. See, we're going to only become freer and freer from the bargains that we've made with Satan, the one things he's promised to us, from the evil that we've gotten entangled in, that's around us, the things that we can't regularly get rid of. The only way we're going to get free of that is is by routinely, consistently beholding, taking in what Jesus has done for us. That's the way. How he's had mercy on us. And to the degree that we see Jesus showing up, showing up on, on the unclean shores of our lives, to the degree we see him taking our place as demonized men and women who've been afflicted by evil and had no other choice but to live out evil, to the degree we see him showing up for our sake, trading places with us, and him being the one who's stripped naked, him being the one who's, who's torn open, cut open, seeing him being the one who's crying out under the cross under the full weight of the wrath of God that is deserving for us and our evil. To the degree in which we see that, we see, see Jesus choosing to, to go into the tomb for our sake. To the degree we see that, we behold it, and we take it in, and that's the thing that we know that this is what Jesus has done for me. To that degree, we become free of the evil that entangles us. That's the way. We must behold him and take him in, and we become free people. And that's precisely what this table reminds us of. This is the table of remembrance of what the Lord has done for you. Of the great mercy he has shown on you. And so, I'm going to pray And then we're going to come forward and receive these elements, this body and this blood broken for you, broken for me, a manifestation of the mercy of God for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your mercy has been total. There is nothing lacking for us. You have defeated the evil one. So this is a table of celebration, a table of remembrance, Lord, a table of humility where we come in the midst of all the ways in which we're trying to take care of ourselves and the ways in which we're even still agreeing with Satan and we humble ourselves. We come and we fall on our knees before you and and we say, Lord, have mercy on us. And then we receive and we take into our body this this cup, this, this bread, And we ask you to make us free people. Free us, Lord, we pray to the praise of your glory, for the good of your kingdom, to the glory of Christ, our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this is a meal for you. This is one of the ways in which you recount the mercies that he has shown to you. So come, receive the body and the blood of Christ for you.